Got your bare claws in our seat. Slide in. Don't slam it. Man, this keys is a thud. Without sleep, I can see stand around too. Lights blazing. I'll zip after that. Yeah. He watches a lot of C-SPAN. Mmm. Blaze are good this morning. They were just pulling them out of the deep fat fryer when I got there. I traded hauling some of the fish I caught last night for them. Mmm. Bear claws. Did you know? I did not know this. I was, I was looking up bear claws as soon as this episode ended. And it's actually used in the U.S. Regional Dialect Survey results. Question number 87. Do you use the term bear claw for a kind of pastry? What would the other name for a bear claw be? I have no idea. <laughs> I tried looking more into this question, but it's that's what we call to... them, right? Bear claws. That's what I would call it. Yeah, like we would call it bear. Wait, hang on. <laughs> While Charles is reading more, listener, if you have another name for a bear claw, please write into Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, that's all I've ever heard them called. Anything else? Any conclusive evidence? No, the website is like from the Wayback Machine, so I can't actually click um, through the results. Yeah. But there is 122 questions. Like some of them are saying, what do you call a public railway system normally underground? What is a generic term for a sweetened carbonated beverage? When you are cold and little points of skin begin to come on your arms and legs, you have blank. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting that Bear Claw is going to be yeah. one of them. Is it an apple fritter? Is that the other word? Because that's different, right? A bear claw? Or is it the exact same thing? Uh, <laughs> I don't even know now. Like My head's exploding <laughs> thinking about this. So like, okay, so the real definition that it says right here is that a bear claw is usually filled with almond paste and sometimes raisins and often shaped in a semicircle with slices along the curved edge mm. or rectangular with partial slices along one side. As the dough rises, the sectionals separate, evoking the shape of a bear's toes, hence the name. So, kind of? Definitely not apple fritter, though. Have you ever had a bear claw? Yes. Mm -hmm. They're huge. Yeah, like, they're just, they, like, they're, you're right. Yeah, they're they're like not meant for one, <laughs> one sitting. For one, oh, one sitting? Uh, sure. <laughs> They're not meant for one sitting, but they often get eaten in one sitting. <laughs> well, Renato eats it in one sitting. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. We're not really talking about bear claws. We're kind of talking about Ronaldo, but, but what are we talking about today, Charles? Yeah, so what we're talking about here is Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and that's right. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast where uh, we watch every episode of Northern Exposure one by one, overanalyze it. And um, Charles, we can say that this is your first time watching the series. You know, I've seen this. Uh, this is one of my favorite television series. Uh, I've only seen season six once before. I believe I said that the last episode. I'm pretty sure that still rings true. I can't remember re-watching the sixth season. But for you, Charles, it's all kind of brand new each time. So, uh yeah, how how you feeling so far in in the second episode of season six? Ah, uh, okay. So I can kind of tell what people are saying when they say that some of the characters feel a little bit different than what they were at season one through season four. So, for example, right off the top of my head, I thought that Chris was acting <laughs> a little bit strange. He's uh, I I was that was my initial reaction. Yeah, I think I can agree. Actually, he. <laughs> He seems weird in this episode. I did end up buying it by the end. I was like, yeah, sure, this could be Chris, but we don't know him as a collector of um, cast iron antique banks or whatever. Yeah, well, 
and just this is his where, personality too. Sorry. Right. The thing that confused me was in the auction scene. So before we get into anything, I'm just going to talk about this really quickly. Yeah, yeah. So we we get to the auction scene where they're trying to buy Maggie's old little iron bank, and every single time the price raises up. Uh, done by Chris, who keeps raising it, Maggie turns around and says, like, what the heck? What are you doing? And he doesn't say a word. He's kind of robotic in a way, too. (laughs) And it's, I was, I I honestly didn't even recognize it was Chris. I was like, maybe it's like some, like, extra that looks like Chris. He's got the haircut. Like, I don't know, maybe it's some fluke of the universe. But no, I thought it was so strange that he wasn't saying a word. He wasn't saying, like, oh, no, Maggie, I gotta have it. I Just look at it. Look at the condition. He keeps to himself, and then we have to get to the next scene. To understand, like, why. Yeah, he's very hidden, or I don't know. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, and then we get to the very last scene. We're like, maybe... There was something a little bit more, and and there is something there mm-hmm. for his reasoning for wanting that old iron bank because it reminded him of his past. There, there, there is like that little reason. Sure, but he gives it up at the end for very little reason. There wasn't like a hidden thing underneath what I just said beforehand. Maybe I thought there was some sentimental value mm-hmm. that we, as an audience, were going to understand at the third act. But just more money, I guess. It, it was just more out. money, and I was like, "That, well, like, that is not a very good resolution." Maybe we'll start with that plot line since we're kind of talking about it, but we we still got a little bit of this uh, this opening that we got to get through. Um, I gotta say, I thought uh, maybe maybe uh, this is. I guess we're getting ahead of ourselves still with another plot line, but maybe the um, boy detective angle might have piqued your interest, Charles. Uh, I thought it was within the character of Ed. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can see Ed doing this. He, now, if we were approaching this from like a broader macro spec of being like, okay, what is Ed's character? Is he a shaman? Is he a filmmaker? Is he a detective? <laughs> like, is this a purposeful choice because we want him to be very malleable and mm-hmm. that he's trying to understand his path in life? Where are we trying to go with this? Because in season one through four, Right. I had a strong understanding that Ed wanted to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. that felt like a calling to his life. And then season five kind of like dropped into a shaman slash doctor. And now even at the end of season five, we had the introduction of Ronaldo the detective who mm-hmm. comes back again for this episode, introduces him to this other odd job. So now we as an audience are kind of left wondering, what are they doing with Ed's character? Yeah, maybe they were afraid that they took too big of a swing with the shaman in training at the beginning of season five, because they do sort of, uh, throughout season five, they go back and forth between Ed the shaman in training and Ed the filmmaker. And he has a couple, at least one episode concerning um, the balance between the two. So maybe now with uh, bringing Ronaldo Pine Tree in the end of season five and now back again here in season six, they're just trying to go back to Ed the like jack of all trades. Like they don't want to make him any one specific thing. They've already, perhaps accidentally or um, to to ill effect, they've already diluted his dream of being a filmmaker by adding the shaman thing. So they're just like, okay, we need to spread it as much as we can. Um, Though I'll say, I much prefer Ed the Filmmaker. However, some of the better episodes in season five are ones in which um, Ed is like a shaman in training. Like He has some cool, I didn't want him to be a shaman in training as his character, but some of those episodes are pretty good, I think, or those those um, storylines. I almost feel like I need to rewatch it because I don't know if it's working in spite of that or working because of mm, that. Mm-hmm. 
I think the thing that really works in Ed's favor as a filmmaker is because just as we look at Chris as the voice and the person that's pontificating on the overall themes of what's happening in the episode, Ed was looking at it from a filmmaker's look. So it was a very similar role, but also distinctly different because he himself is an active participant, whereas Chris was mostly a voice in the air, just monologuing as the Mm. citizens of Sicily listened to him. I thought that it was a really creative niche, and we as an audience could look through that and understand Ed as a character even more because he communicates through film. That's how he enters the world. But when you remove that aspect of him, I I feel like it's generally weaker – because we're not replacing it with anything more. General Handyman is like an okay thing to have, mm-hmm. but I don't know if Northern Exposure was really hungering for that. Yeah, because he's always had that as like a background, but he has that primary vision of filmmaker that we liked to um, to latch on to. And I feel like in almost every episode, there are references to other films, and it's usually Ed who's talking about another film. Even if it's just the throwaway line, we get some nice film references. Um, But yeah, so we're talking very broadly about this episode, about Northern Exposure at this point in its life cycle. Let's dive into the specifics. Let's start with the episode title, the credits. We've got season six, episode two. The title is Eye of the Beholder. And I think that's a great title. I think it's a pretty good title for this episode. I think each plot line makes sense underneath that theme. Uh, Eye of the Beholder works for me. Uh, The director, Jim Charleston, he's worked uh, mostly as a first AD on Northern Exposure, I think starting back in season two and then all throughout the seasons up till now, he's been uh, first ADing. And he also directed a couple episodes in season five, Jaws of Life and Baby Blues. Now this episode... I'm not sure if he continues. He might continue in season six, but I do know looking at his credits, he's still, or like he was still working in TV after this as a director. The writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, um, their first episode that they wrote for Northern Exposure was Things Become Extinct back in season three. They also wrote, uh, I'm just going to kind of list some important ones, uh, Three Amigos, Gross Point 48230, The Big Feast, Hello, I Love You, Uh, They also wrote Jaws of Life, which Jim Charleston directed. But we know them. They will go on to work on The Sopranos with our executive producer, David Chase. Finally, the air date, September 26th, 1994. And besides that, I'll just say there's not really an opening gambit to this. We just jump straight to the theme song before our first scene. But I wonder, um, do we want to just jump down into the Maggie Chris plot line or how do you want to approach this? Uh, I guess we can talk about the very beginning scene because I think that sets up a lot. That's yeah. definitely the A plot of yeah. the episode. Mm-hmm. So what happens here is that we get a return of the character Renato Pinetree, the private investigator from last season. I remember liking him. Yeah. I remember thinking he was a great character. I'm really happy that he's back. Mm -hmm. He's awesome in this episode. I love – it's in a later scene. One of my favorite scenes with him is when they're – I don't even know who who this person is, but it's someone, maybe an insurance uh, claim adjuster or something, Mm -hmm. is down there and he's kind of rattling off the sequence of events and Ronaldo Pinetree is just repeating like what he's saying, but repeating Mm -hmm. it so that he gets a clear picture. And I don't know. I just liked – 
I like that scene. I really love this actor, uh, Ronald G. Joseph. Unfortunately, Charles, whenever he first appeared back in season five, I told you that he would be making a return appearance uh, a few times in season six. This is actually his last episode. He's only in two episodes of Northern Exposure. Ah, that's always a shame. And you can never figure out why. Maybe like they just felt he was done with the character. Maybe they felt like there was nothing else to write about them. But I always feel like characters that have a returning gig, I always like them to have a little bit of a send off, which I guess to some degree there is some, (laughs) the very ending shots of him. Yeah. But before we get there, like you said, they're pulling up to Lester's house because there's some sort of fraud that's going on. And we also get introduced to another new character, Heather, which is Lester's daughter. Heather Haynes, played by Charmaine Craig. She's actually, she's an author, turns out. I mean, she was an actress, obviously. Um, It looks like she mostly did this show. So she's going to be returning uh, throughout this season at least a couple times, Hmm. um, this character, which is interesting because I thought this could just be a one and done type character, but we'll see her return. Um, I just also, before I just want to get in real fast, she is an author she had a book, uh, she has a number of books that um, I guess are pretty good sellers, pretty well-reviewed, but one of her books in 2017 titled Miss Burma was long-listed for the National Book Award. Oh. long. What is long, so long-list, I guess it's like short-list, like, but it's just like whatever doesn't make the short-list and we still yeah. like it, we'll give it on the long-list. Yeah. I mean, that's still an honor right, right yeah, then and there. for sure. I think that's amazing. Uh I will be honest mm-hmm. this episode. <laughs> I don't think she is. She was particularly great. She's not a great actress. She's very beautiful. And I think she fits that part for someone who is attractive to Ed. She plays, I would say, I would say, you know, we're getting a lot of tonal notes in this first scene. The, like the, the soundtrack is very jazzy noir. You know, just the way Ronaldo Pinetree is talking is very classic uh, detective noir, you know, and this introduction of this Heather Haynes character, the femme fatale, that we is just a trope. We know a a trope of um, noir films, I guess. Uh, But no, go ahead. Tell tell me what you think about. Oh, no, that was pretty much it. I don't (laughs) like harching on other people's uh, uh, thing, uh, especially I think that I'm glad that you had recognized it as well. Like it wasn't me going insane because <laughs> uh, I heard like the first couple of lines and I was like, what? <laughs> and then it just kept going. I was like, oh, I think this is like, I don't even think she's, I don't think she's bad. I, I want to make that clear. I think she's inexperienced. It just doesn't feel as natural necessarily. It seems a bit performed maybe. Right. Which is like not terrible for certain things, but it, it feels a little bit out of sync with the other characters in the scene. Maybe. Right. Like I could tell that she was trying to give it her all, but there was like a, it was only like a surface level. Like there was a missing Mm -hmm. depth to the performance, which just comes with more practice. So yeah, I had nothing against her as like the character itself of Heather Haynes. Well, she's going to have a few more chances to win over our favor. We'll see. Like I, I can't remember how many, but I noticed that she is recurring in this season. So we'll see her again. No, all right. <laughs> there is one word that caught my attention uh, whenever describing the case. So the case, uh, very briefly, is just basically we have Hayden Keys returning, and he was helping to build something. He was doing some sort of uh, work mm-hmm. around Lester Haynes' property, and then he stepped on a rake, and it cantilevered up 
Yeah. They hit him in the face. And apparently that had some sort of more than surface level injury to it. He was wearing a neck brace now. It's prohibiting him from being able to walk. So mm-hmm. it's like a whole hazard of things out there. But the word cantilever was very eye-catching to me or ear-catching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fun word. Cantilever, uh, I don't know how else to describe it except how we hear it like uh, when you step on a rake, like a cartoon character, and it le- it's like a lever, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way, like you're pulling a switch. I had to look it up because I didn't know it was even used in that way. Mm. And it turned out that like, you have like buildings or like architecture that are cantilevers. Whenever there's like a large amount that's like shifted to the side and it's being supported on the other end of where the weight is. So mm. you've definitely seen that in some time. If you walk through a city, you've been like, yeah. oh, okay, it's like that thing. I thought it was really interesting right there. But yeah, enough about the cantilever right here. We should go and talk about, well, the plotline that we talked about with Maggie and Chris. Right. And that actually comes up right after this scene. So we kind of lead right into it. Because um, after this little introduction here with uh, Ed and Ronaldo and Heather, we cut to a shot of Maggie walking down sort of like this field, this meadow, walking into town. And she crosses Hayden Keys, um, who's, you know, walking around. I think in the previous scene, Ed says, you know, he's got a neck brace and he's got one of those aluminum dealies, meaning like a walker, aluminum walker. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he is... Um, he, he does present this way. Maggie walks past him and straight to this um, sort of outdoor, it almost feels like a uh, like a yard sale, but I believe this is Ruthann setting up for the library benefit auction. So she's gathering donations from the town that they will auction off to raise money for the library. Maggie has brought this old mechanical bank. She calls it a boss tweed, you know, like a Tammany Hall thing. I have no idea what either of those means, but I, I understand that it is a, an old iron mechanical bank that you sort of a toy, but it collects your coins and stuff. Yeah. Before we talk about that bank, I wanted to talk about how strange that musical cue is when I'm getting across this path with Maggie. I'm glad you brought this up. Go ahead. Yeah. Was that? It's like, that's gotta be an error, right? There's no way that was like intentional. <laughs> there's a few, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a few odd musical cues in this episode. In fact... I went and watched this on, so we're watching like the Blu-ray. I went and watched this back on DVD and it does not include those musical cues. Uh, I don't think it's an error because there's a couple cues that like, that have like specific start and stop points that make sense um, for them to start and stop. Though I think the cue itself is a poor choice to include. I think a lot of these musical cues are bad, but but this one specifically starts in such a weird way. Yeah, it, <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure this is just common sense. But if you use like a musical cue, it's to segue into the next scene to help transition and into it. So let's say in this one, like you said, Maggie's walking through this um, like shortcut of a meadow of like through some trees and Hayden's on the other side. As soon as she steps off of that grass path and she enters into that kerfuffle of a thing that Ruthann set up, that's when the musical cue should kick in. Because that denotes the line of demarcation between, yeah. It comes in like halfway when she's on the grassy knoll. I was like, what is yeah. happening here? There's, yeah, I that is one use for sure to make a transitional um, cut, you know, with, with music. But it does happen a little oddly, a little early. And then there's a later, there's a scene um, 
at this, uh, when they're looking over the items for this auction, it's like Shelly and Hauling. The scene starts and then maybe like 10 or 15 seconds into the scene, music kicks up for no reason. There's no cue for it to happen. It just starts happening. Um, later, there's a scene at the, I guess we will talk about it because a lot of these <laughs> odd musical cues happen in this plot line. So let's just keep going down the plot line, but keep that in your mind. If you think of any of those weird music cues, uh, do bring them up. But currently, we're looking over this Boss Tweed, Tammany Hall, whatever, old mechanical bank that Maggie says um, her grandmother gave to her, her Grammy gave it to her, but it's just been sitting around. So she's decided to donate it here to the auction. Ruthann, however, recognizes it instantly. And she like seemingly, with her tone of voice and the words she uses, she seems to value it pretty highly. Like she thanks Maggie profusely for donating something like that to the auction. Like, wow, this is great. Thank you so much. And uh, we can tell that, you know, it comes from Maggie's grandma and Ruthann, you know, is also an older person. So maybe they have this nostalgic appreciation for it. However, we'll learn later that there's a, you know, there's a bit more value there, even past just nostalgia. Yeah. So the words Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed evokes this very old, like 1900s, New England, New York mm. political organization. So like what Tammany Hall was, was like, they were like a political machine of the Democratic Party back then. And you would think that like, you know, you hear those words, you're like, oh, yeah, uh, good organization. But like, no, they're like highly corrupt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Boss Tweed and them were people that were just not, I mean, yeah, it really poisoned the well <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right, right there. But when you think of those words, you think of that old, old days where like people were like trying to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, stuff <laughs> like that, um, which actually goes along with that because they were actually associated with that to some degree. I was uh, I was just reading about it, but like mm-hmm. apparently the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge was pretty corrupt. Mm. The corrupt people were kind of handling it to a certain ah. degree because they would um, – <laughs> They would try to replace it with subpar materials to build the bridge with, uh, mm. stuff like that. So it's a pretty good choice of words to try to get the sense of something that's very old. Right. Yeah. I think anytime you hear a uh, political boss or political machine, it always seems corrupt or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's continue down this plot line with, I believe it's that scene I'm talking about with with Shelley and Holling. They're looking around at the auction and then odd musical cue starts up. They end up finding a um, dollhouse that they're going to give to Miranda, perhaps for her first birthday. But I think we could kind of loop that one in with, um, with, you know, that's, that's another storyline Like we can, I think, I think also Maurice's wine, which is going to be auctioned off at the auction. That's, I think can be looped in with that perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk about it all right here since they're all relatively pretty simple because they all shared a very common theme of something that's was someone's possession, mm-hmm. and now they're trying to pawn it off. But they're not pawning it off because they they believe that it could serve a greater purpose toward the next owner. It was because there was some sort of flaw to them. Right. So they wanted to get rid of it. I think that there's a some sort of electrical apparatus that the um, electric knife. Yes, that was it. The electric knife. Yeah that Shelly and Holling had and Shelly has to remind them to be like, Oh no, there's something wrong with this. Like, uh, they, you know, remember when we tried to plug it in, we did this thing. <laughs> Maurice knows that his wine is not good. There's something right. off about it. So he's trying to give that off. Uh, the shotgun 
there's also something mm-hmm. wrong with that. Uh, the only thing that really doesn't have anything necessarily wrong with it is the mechanical bank mm. that Maggie is trying to give up. Yeah. Which does come back to haunt her. Because it has nothing actually wrong with it, she does want it back. Right. Um, well, she will, and in this scene, she expresses guilt, remorse to Joel, because uh, this is still before the auction. I think this is just like people get to look at what is going to be auctioned off before they actually do the uh, the auctioning. Um, so they're kind of walking around. Everyone's taking a look. It's like, okay, maybe I'll bid on this. Maybe I'll bid on that. She tells Joel how guilty she feels because like it was a gift from her Grammy and she loves her Grammy. She's just, you know, I had this in the closet for years and I just never used it. So I figured I'd donate it. And Joel's like, what? It's fine. It's whatever. But you know, (laughs) it's just like that kind of back and forth between them. Obviously Maggie is distressed and they're kind of having two separate conversations maybe. Well, it's funny though they bring up the Grammy because you said the writers worked on Gross Point 90210, right? Yeah. uh, Gross Point... Four eight two three zero. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I, where am I getting nine zero two one zero for? Is that uh, that's the Beverly show? Hills. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so in that episode, the Grammy is a center focal point mm-hmm. because uh, she doesn't want to leave. Right? She doesn't want to leave the bathroom. Right. That's right. Yes. So Maggie and Grammy have a very close relationship. So that makes a lot of sense that it's carried over into this episode. Right. And before we get to the auction proper, we briefly touched on Maurice. Um, I do want to talk about that because I, I do think that is a, it develops into a bit of a, it's a small plot line, but it's kind of an important one. But earlier uh, when he's deciding, he decides to donate this case of 73 Pomeril um, because he's not entirely explicit what's going on here, but he's in his wine cellar with a French person, this French man, presumably maybe trying to sell some wine to this guy. Um, and they find this case of 73 Pomerol. And this French man's like, oh, like, that's not good. Like, you've had this sitting around for, you know, you have you still have this whole case of 73 Pomerol. And Maurice is like, yeah, what do you think? It might have peaked. And he's like, only one way to find out. So they uncork it. The cork, um, a note on that is the cork comes out very easily. And Maurice is like, well, it could be a bad cork. Uh, I think that's a sign of, I'm assuming like uh, this has degraded too much over time. So it's not keeping keeping things tight as it was uh, once before. Anyway, this wine, they can instantly smell it and tell that it's turned to vinegar. However, Maurice is like, well, I got to figure out how to offload it somehow. And that's when in this scene that we're talking about now, we realize that, um, that he has donated it to this auction. So that's the thing though, is like Maurice isn't, getting any money for this though. Maybe I guess he could write it off as a tax, like a donation tax write-off. Maybe that's the value there, but I think he's just trying to get rid of it mostly though. There might be some more nefarious, like he might be trying to get a tax write-off, but Holling does take interest in this case of wine. And maybe because he belonged to Maurice, he knows it could be pretty good. Um, But Maurice is like, Oh, you don't want to buy that wine Holling. Like, don't worry about that. That's basically all we get so far. Um, I think the next scene would be the auction, right? Yeah, the next scene is the auction where Maggie wants to bid back on the mechanical bank and it just keeps rising in price between her and Chris. And it gets all the way up to $500. $500, yeah. yeah. $500, which it was starting at 100 was it not? Yeah, actually, I think she started it at 50 and the auctioneer guy, I don't know what you call those, but he's like, Come on, like this isn't like 
what what does he say? He names it's like this isn't like Talkeetna or something. He names some other city. It's like, come on, we got to start higher than that. And so she she starts at fifty, but then she goes up to um a hundred dollars, and then it keeps going back and forth with her and Chris. Right. I had written in my notes, and I I don't remember this. But I, apparently it must be true if I took the time to write it. I said there was weird music going yep. on in the mm-hmm. auction scene. Yeah, okay. It is a very strange drone that it picks up from the scene that happens before this, which is Ed's plot line. He's like spying on Hayden. We'll get to that later. But the music in that scene begins to change into this very droney, almost uncomfortable tone that um, kind of takes over the entire soundtrack. And it continues into this scene with the auction. And it just gives the whole scene a very uncomfortable, strange, almost scary vibe of this uh, this drony tone throughout. And then as soon as Maggie places her bid, the music cuts. Like it just really cuts out <laughs> sharply. And it's just like, what? Um, yeah, odd choice. I do not think it is a great tone, tonally, not just like musically, but just like, our um, aesthetic tone for this scene. I understand it give it it gives it a certain feeling to the scene. I don't know if it's the right choice to have that music in there. Yeah, uh, we see the reasoning behind it because it's obviously there to um, snap Maggie into wanting to buy it. I just feel like there's a better way of executing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's odd enough for me to be like, yeah, this is kind of weird music choice. <laughs> it must be because usually I don't care about that type of right. thing. So it must have been particularly egregious for me to pick up on that. Uh, the next time that we see them after Chris wins the auction is in Chris's cabode where Maggie comes to pay a visit to him. Here is something I didn't quite understand on this scene as well. Okay. So in this scene, Maggie's coming back to get the mechanical bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's trying to get it back. She's trying to appeal to Chris's better side by saying, like, it was my Grammys. And I think that, like, you know, there'll be other ones like this, Chris. Like, it, it doesn't really matter. And then Chris says, no, look at the value of it in this book that I have that has, like, the monetary value of what they should be worth. Mm-hmm. This thing should be worth, like, $1,000. And I got it at 500 That's a steal. Uh, extra $500 in my pocket. But then he says, this will also be great in my collection. Mm-hmm. And he pulls up these various old Americana icons, William Tell, Flatiron Building, whatever. <laughs> and he says, stopped robbing them, started collecting them. So that is also something that harkens back to Chris's old days of being mm-hmm. a criminal. So he finds that these old momentums that are forever shaped into these iron forms that can never change, whereas he himself can change. So maybe that's what gives him such power and Mm. such uh, fervor toward these little figures. That's pretty cool. My problem, yeah. My problem with this, though, is like, you just said that the monetary value of it was over. So it seems like you have plans of selling it because you're saying that it's worth more. And but then now you're saying you want to keep it for at least four of these of which you have not sold. And I'm assuming that they're pretty pricey as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not too sure which one he wants. Now you can make an argument to me saying he's wanting both. He wants to have his time with them for like a little bit. And then once he gets tired of them, he wants to sell them. I get that, but also like I don't think that, like that's a really sound explanation for why he would bid it over Maggie, though. So I was gonna say uh the way I read this scene initially was uh 
you know, he starts by valuing it with that catalog, you know, rarity three, value 10, times adjustable factor 1.3. So he's just trying to tell her, like, this is something that is worth my obsession with it. Like, that's why I'm so obsessed with it. But then he starts to open up and he shows her, like, his collection. I love, like, the little, it's like in a little cabinet and it has its own light. So we do learn that it has a deeper meaning to him. Um, however, spoiler ahead, he does end up selling it back to Maggie for double the price. So I don't know. Yeah. Is it something that the value is to him more about, uh, something more personal or is it the money? But I don't know. Maybe it's like you said, maybe it can be both. I think, uh, at the end of the episode, Ronaldo Pine Tree says like, it's not just black and white. So there's probably two within Chris, there are two wolves, you know, it's like, <laughs> He's, it's probably a, a number of factors. The, 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 the poorly written wolf and the actually <laughs> yeah, good yeah, wolf. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like, so what they're saying in the scene right here, though, that's very, that's a good observation that you point out. It's mm-hmm. double the value. So it's actually the, the value in which he sells it back to Maggie is the one listed in the book. Mm-hmm. So he was not willing to go one cent less than the derived monetary mm-hmm. value of this until Maggie reached that peak. So their friendship gives them nothing. It means nothing to Chris. I see what you're saying. Anybody could have rolled up and gave him $1,000 and he would have relinquished it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know why why he's doing – why they're acting that way. Um, It didn't bug me a whole, whole lot because it never got too far to a point. Like there's even – there's even at the end of this scene when she's in this trailer, they kind of – they don't like yell at each other, but you can tell it's like written at least to show that they don't end on good terms. Like I forget. She's like, well, if you're going to act that way. And he's like, I'm sorry. And then she just leaves, you know? Hey. going to be that way. Well, I'm sorry. So I could see that just looking at the script, it could, get, could have gotten a little nastier. The way the actors played it, it wasn't too nasty. But yeah, I don't know what I'm getting at here. Just that it felt like it, it definitely seems like it is at fault for what um, what we we are starting to criticize in this in the later seasons of the show, where the characters are kind of becoming more combative with each other, trying to generate more interpersonal conflicts between them. When we know that the whole the whole principle that this show is kind of built on from the beginning is just like how strong of a community and how friendly people are with each other. I mean, that doesn't mean they don't like get in disagreements, but. Yeah, it fe- it feels uh, it definitely. F- this is the scene that feels really out of character, perhaps. Yeah, and the contrast is made even more stronger because while this does not involve the Chris and Maggie plotline, it involves Ed and Chris because later on Ed's going to seek Chris's guidance, and he's reading the bell jar from Sylvia Plath, and he's given off this these monologues of how Plath could make it to the end. But he wanted to highlight what she was able to say. And he wants to compare that with Ed, who's saying, you say there's something wrong with you, only there's nothing really wrong with you. So it's really diving into both the author herself, Plath and her troubles, and what Ed is seeing in other individuals. So we're able to get like this very interesting parallel between there and Chris is trying to be that voice that's helping Ed. Mm-hmm. You, we, we're aware that Chris now is not a robot and he, <laughs> he like he doesn't see things <laughs> yeah, in this such is, an arbitrary way. This is more normal for Chris, this scene. Yeah. Right? So you see this and you're like, <laughs> okay, 
Like I, I get where this is coming from, but then when you get past the scene and let's fast forward to mm-hmm. where we see uh, Chris. Oh, I think I might have skipped like a very small scene and it's uh Chris gets some like rabbit legs from Walt. Oh, that's okay. We can. Yeah. But we fast forward to the next scene with Chris where he's trying to cook the rabbit legs that he's gotten from Walt earlier in the episode. Mm-hmm. And he's outside in nature and Maggie meets up with him. And this is the scene that we talked about where Maggie tries to make her case with Chris and say that, you know, I, I think that you really could just get another one, Chris. And Chris is saying, like, I wouldn't be able to find one in this condition. And then Maggie mm-hmm. finally relents and says, all right, uh, $800, $900, $1,000 sold. Yeah, he, he waits. He's like really almost like, I, la- I don't remember the exact wording, but it's interesting because it seems like there is no chance at all. And even like when she, if he has this number 1,000 in his head and he's ready to say sold, like when she gets to 900, I forget what he says, but he, he, he says something to, to make it seem like, okay, it's just not, it's not, he's not going to budge. 750. Nope. 800. No way. Nine. Look, I told you no. A thousand. Sold. What? Hate to see the little guy go. So, I don't know. It's very, very uh, coy trick that he's playing here. I do appreciate this scene because we get to learn, again, this may not be very characteristic of Chris, but just the idea of a collector's mindset because um, as you said before, she's like, you know, I'll pay you what it's worth in that book. And then you just go buy another one. And he's like, I mean, where am I going to just buy another one? They don't stock these. Like you have to find someone who's who's collected it or who's had it in their closet like Maggie. You know, you just have to, these are not something you can go out and buy. The The search for it is the value as well. Like, you know, you have to spend your time and energy and it's its own sort of detective case trying to find this. And this is the, you know, not only is this one in great condition, this bank is in great condition. This is the one that he won at auction. So he was there and he got that rush, like he did it. So I can see there being a value bigger than just the money. Um, yeah, but the flip side of that is, sorry to cut you off. The flip side of that is that ends up that doesn't matter to him once she reaches a thousand. So there is right. like well, a back and forth between the two. Well, what I was also going to say was that that also goes double for Maggie as well. When Chris yeah. says, mm-hmm. where am I going to find another one just like this? That is applicable to Maggie. It's where is grandma. she going to find another one that her grandma gave her? It's this one. It's this specific one that happens to be in a very good condition right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ending scene for this is Maggie looking at the mechanical bank. And Chris is saying to keep it out of the sun. Because, you know, the paint could wear off and everything. And she's looking at this Mm $1,000 of memories. And she's looking at it, and the paint is a little bit chipped off. And it's really, at the end, it's something that fits into the palm of her hand. And I don't know what to think of this ending scene. It looks morose. It's a little forlorn. Yeah, I think for me, I appreciate this plot line, even if it deviates from the characteristics of like our characters, because it teaches you the, I mean, this is going back to the title of the episode, the eye of the beholder, like teaches you all the different value that you can pull out of something. And in at the end, in Maggie's hands, we, we just get the close-up shot of the bank in her hand. Like you said, it fits right in her hand. I don't think we get a reverse angle, like back to Maggie. So we don't get her reaction. So we don't know in the end, like, does this feel good to her? 
that she now has her Grammys bank. I mean, maybe it probably will in a few years. Like she'll be so glad she has it. But in this moment, I mean, maybe she won't actually. Maybe she'll regret because I did forgot to bring this up. But this was in 1994. Factoring in inflation, I don't know. I didn't recognize. I didn't realize this, but uh, back in 1994, prices have gone up double, 101 percent. So she paid in today's money $2,010.88 for this bank is wild. Yeah. I, I can't imagine cost of living is that much over in Sicily, Alaska. Yeah. So that's a, a lot of money. That's a lot of money for, for Maggie. But anyway, sorry, just to, I just wanted to underline my point is like we learn the very, very many facets of value. Like what what can what can increase the value of an item? That's just more than money. It can be personal. It can be collection. It can be the fact that they're the supply and demand, like these don't exist anymore. Yeah, I don't know. So it's a lot that factors in there. No, I respect that. I, I really like the way that you you looked into this and tried to and tried to ferret out more <laughs> than what was being done on the surface. Because I <laughs> I did not give it. It's distressing. That much. Yeah, well, that's just distressing that Chris is acting weird. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I I respect that. I think that what you said is very reasonable whenever we look at that in that lens. Uh, should we carry that forward to the next plot line? Yeah, so we've got, obviously we've got Ed and Rinaldo. We've kind of tucked aside Hauling and Shelley and Maurice kind of fit together. Is that it? That's basically it, right? That's basically okay. it. We can talk about the dollhouse. Yeah, let's do that. So if we go back, I think this is, uh, again, kind of centering around the auction. We'll kind of touch on Maurice as we can throughout this. Um, but let's talk about the dollhouse that Shelly finds at the sort of like walkabout at the auction. And um, yeah, they're like, this looks perfect. Uh, you know, Miranda is turning one. This could be a perfect present for her. And um you know, do they ever show them like buying this at auction? We see them buying the wine because Holling does buy the wine at auction. Do we ever see them buy the dollhouse at auction? I don't think so. We see the next scene of them hauling yeah. it back to the brick. Uh, they're trying to renovate it. Yeah. So maybe we just jump to that. We we don't see them actually win it at auction, but it's inferred because later they have it and Shelly is uh, fixing it up. She finds like a little shred of paper inside of it that... It's kind of torn apart, but you can infer from the the print on it that it says April 6th, 1982. Like it's an old newspaper or something. Or sorry, 1892. My bad. April yeah. 6th, 1892. <laughs> yeah, we can gather that this is an incredibly old dollhouse right here. And I, I just want to say that like in terms of metaphors, I don't think I've ever seen dollhouse be used as a like a good metaphor i don't mean like it's like mean? a bad one to use i mean like it's always ominous uh, because there's always like the obvious <laughs> themes of like someone playing house yeah or someone compartmentalizing their feelings someone feeling that the um, something is out of their control as if yeah. someone else is taking control of the little pieces and mechanisms within their lives. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Anytime you hear the word dollhouse, it's not a pejorative. I don't, I don't even know if there's a word for it. Cause pejorative yeah. means like, it's like a slang. Like it's a like bad a bad thing to say. It's like an omen. Yeah. This is like, anytime you hear that word, like <laughs> dollhouse, you're like, all right, that's creepy. Things, well, things are about to go south. <laughs> if we think about it as like a Jungian symbol, specifically an old dollhouse, like I guess if you saw a little kid playing with a dollhouse, that's cute. 
But if you just see a dollhouse alone, it uh, signifies or it insinuates that this once was a toy for a child that is no longer used. It's this abandoned home. It's old. And I think that is what the symbol is for this this episode because Shelley will have some nightmares later about just how old and the history that this carries with it. And, you know, everyone who used to play with it now is probably dead. Uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Go ahead. No, we can, yeah. we can talk about that scene because that comes yeah. directly after that okay. whenever she discovers the note. We see that Shelly wakes up in the dollhouse. It's a very Alice in Wonderland type of sequence where mm-hmm. she's very large and things are very small. And she's stomping around in this dollhouse that she she's aware that like it is a dollhouse of some sort because then she meets Ruth Ann's character and she recognizes <laughs> that it's Ruth Ann, but then Ruth Ann has to say, no, I was the first original owner of it. She's playing this other character called Phyllis Mink. Yeah. It's not everything. And you knew that it was like a really bad thing as soon as she said, my father <laughs> built it for me. Because then you're like, all right, so it was a it was like a consolation thing. Did you die from like some old- Scarlet fever is yeah. what she said. She ends up not have, she didn't die from scarlet fever though. She dies from a heart attack like in the 1950s. But but it is, I that's where I was like, I figured she died- she later says she died of a myocardial infarction in 1958 or something like that. Right. The dollhouse is passed down from family member to family mm-hmm. member throughout, and then suddenly she loses track of where it used to go. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be a stronger subtext behind this dollhouse, but they really laid it out for us where they yeah. said, like, <laughs> it's mortality. It's a symbol of something that's passed down from generation to generation. And then most of the time when you hear that passed down from generation to generation, you feel something positive about it. You feel that a lineage is prospering and that you're continuing to thrive. In this particular case, Shelly takes it as something to be feared because she, she knows that in order for something to be passed down, you have to first die. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is like a milestone or a transitional, it's a progression uh, the progression that moves ever towards death. So that's scary. The idea that time is moving forward and things will get passed down. Like the dollhouse will be played with today, but in a couple years, it'll just sit and, you know, it'll be donated to the next auction. So it's scary thinking that Shelly, she's got this whole brand new baby, but it's scary to think that, you know, within a blink of an eye, it's just going to be a footnote, you know, and, and the journals or whatever, it's, you know, it'll be passed down. Yeah. I think the reason that I'm a, like, I'm not like super sour about this particular thing. I just, I just think that there could be a better symbol. Mm-hmm. Like if you ask me right off the top of my head, what I would use, I would say, you know, those like sticks that measure height as oh, a yeah. child mm-hmm. grows up. I think that's a really nice one to use. Dollhouse is it has a lot of untapped potential, like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and I feel like they didn't use it unless I'm missing out, which is a possibility because I'm a huge idiot. But there's a, I don't believe that like they really tapped into dollhouse that much. Well, they got to they got to visualize it by building a dollhouse set. I think that's fine they did get to have that. Crew. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. Like that, it's an easy. I think I see what you're saying. It is an easy uh, comparison to draw or whatever. It's an easy metaphor to draw, and they're like, yeah, this will be like a uh, great cinematic. Uh, exploration because we can actually build the dollhouse. We'll be inside of it. But yeah, it's a it's just a simple metaphor. Question: Is there any significance why Ruth Ann is Phyllis Mink? Why is it just not some other actress? Like, uh, I feel like we've seen scenes like this, dream sequences like this, where I mean, we've seen dream sequences where the other actors play different characters, but we've also seen you know just guest stars come in. 
uh, my guess is like I don't, I can't think of any significance. I think they just like couldn't cast anybody in this role. It's kind of specific. It requires like an older person uh, who's. I mean, they already have Peg Phillips who plays with Anne. She's great. Or maybe someone dropped out of the role last minute. Or I don't know, maybe there is some significance that Ruth Ann is the embodiment of this character, but I didn't I didn't see it. The simplest explanation, in my opinion, for why they use Ruth Ann is because there's a line from Shelly that says, Ruth Ann? And then she goes, no, I'm Phyllis. So I think if you took one step further than that, it means that you're really just a face attached to another body. So it's interchangeable right oh, there, just anyone. like the people that yeah. inherit the dollhouse. So I took it to be that... And I guess that would be the most likely answer, in my opinion. Uh, the more cynical reason is that, like, they were just really lazy on casting. So yeah. they were just like, what is he use that? But then that wouldn't make any sense because they still have the line, hey, well, they, Ruthann. Well, they would write it in, I That's guess. True. You know, yeah, they would just write it back in. It's also funny, though. I think it's – I didn't – I watched this episode twice uh, in preparation for this, ep- for this uh, podcast. And I didn't really notice it the first time, but it made me literally laugh out loud the second time is in the following scene when they're all gathered around the table for Randy's first birthday. Uh, Shelly has a bit of a breakdown. She's like, ah, Randy, she's just going to get old and die like Phyllis Mink. And then she turns to Ruth Ann and she says, sorry, Ruth Ann. It's like, Ruth Ann would never <laughs> like know who Phyllis Mink is, but it's also funny because Ruth Ann is old. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It just made me laugh. Yeah, <laughs> she has a line where she says, you know, why does it even matter? She's just going to grow old mm-hmm. and get rid of it. Uh, and also, boom, she's going to go off to school with her lunch pail and her pencils. When is the last time anyone actually used lunch pails? <laughs> I, th- I think those are a great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually really like them because of the imagery that they... Lunch box or lunch pail? She says lunch pail. Yeah, yeah. Those are two different things I would say, right? Uh, I guess you could yeah. call a lunch box a lunch pail, but... But the term comes from like having a bucket that you throw your lunch in and travel with, right? I thought it was the thing that like construction workers would use to bring with them. I I know this from cartoons. (laughs) When I was like seven, I'm assuming that's a lunch pail. (laughs) Uh, This is a cool scene. Um, So we got Randy's birthday set up in the brick. In attendance are Maggie, Chris, Walt, Ruthann, and Maurice. And um, Shelly, she says she's not she's put the dollhouse in the cellar because she you know we talked about this she doesn't want to give it to randy she feels like this is uh time is moving too fast like this is just going to be the next stone in the walkway like the next uh stepping stone and she doesn't want time to move forward holling tells everyone at the table okay this is like hormonal shelly's like stopped breastfeeding randy recently and that's kind of messed up her hormones which I think is a little offense, like, you know, whatever. It's like insensitive to say. But actually Shelly jumps on this from a different angle because she says she's thinking of that, the stopping breastfeeding, not as a hormonal thing, but that is another transition of age. Like that is exactly the problem, the transition, the progression that keep happening. Like right now, Randy stopped breastfeeding. Tomorrow she's going to start walking, which, yeah, spoiler alert, oh, it does happen. yeah. <laughs> and also I, I just I just realized why you would use... You would use a dollhouse because things remain the same within it, which is what Shelly wants. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, time is frozen. I, I, that finally just clicked onto me. That's I was like, one. okay, that's why. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. This is a, a That's a very insensitive thing for him to say, but also he, he's in a joyous mood mm-hmm. and he wants to crack open the wine yeah. that he got from Maurice. 
Yeah, and I don't know if you watch this with subtitles. I watch mine with subtitles, and in that scene, it says, in parentheses, Holling giving toast in broken Italian. Yeah, I don't know what he's <laughs> saying in Italian. I saw that too. I was like, what? No, sub, no uh, translation. There's also like when he's giving off the toast, uh, Shelly looks very mm-hmm. forlorn toward what I can only assume to be the cake. Uh, it's at 20, 29, 28. Yeah, it's like a bear. It's like a teddy bear or something, right? Is that right? Yeah, but mm. it's got like the left side of it as a hole. Are you oh. seeing this? No, I didn't. I, I kind of, that was in the corner of my view. Let me see if I can like, find it. Like, what is that hole? <laughs> <laughs> like, why is that there? All right, I'm going to look at it real fast. Weird. Yeah, it kind of looks like, it's not like a bite has been taken out, like a chunk or anything, but like, that maybe the, that's where you would put like a candle or something on it. So to symbolize like Shelly's broken heart. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like where the heart would be. It's like yeah, a crater. It's heart would be. It's such a weird thing with that teddy bear. I thought, I kept looking at that. I was like, well, surely that's not intentional, is it? Because that's very weird. But yeah, Holling is uh, going to open up this wine from the auction. And Maurice is like, oh, is that the 73 Pomerol? Nah, don't you want to save that for a special occasion? I mean, this is Randy's first birthday. What is Maurice? Like, this is the occasion to do it. Uh, he does... Hauling does pour everyone some wine. They remark at how easily the cork comes out. It's like, oh, that's like a good a good bottle of wine. Like the cork comes out easily. Ruthann says, my, it is dry, isn't it? And Chris says, that's good grape, Hauling. Hauling says, it certainly does set right on the teeth. And Maggie off camera says, yeah, it's interesting. I just, I don't know. I liked everyone's reaction. No one really says that it tastes bad. They're just like, oh, this is interesting. Like, old, uh, fancy wine. Uh, later we're going to learn that Walt had some thoughts that maybe he kept to himself. Is that the next thing we could talk about here? Yeah. Yeah. That's the next one we can talk about where it's right after Walt gives the rabbits to Chris and he's walking out of K-Bear and he meets up with Maurice and he chastises Maurice and says like, you should know better than to give poor Holly your friend like a terrible case of wine that you, I know that you know that it's terrible. And then Maurice does that classic thing that people do whenever they're shoved into a corner, but they don't know how to process their emotions very well, which is when they start like victim blaming. Cause he was <laughs> saying like, no, it's his fault. He should have known like he's a grown man. He should realize what bad wine tastes like. That's his fault. I, I'm absolving myself of this. Yeah. Here, I got a soundbite. I'll play. Good morning, Walter. Ah. Well, what's the matter with you? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Minifield. You knew that wine was cooked. Wine? Don't stand there and play Nancy know nothing with me, mister. I was a member of Les Amis du Vin before Gallo had corks. Oh, well, caveat emptor, that's my motto. If he wants to play with the big boys, he better keep his mind on the game. Criminy, Maurice, the man's your friend. Yeah, he's my friend. I don't hear him complaining, do you? Well, you saw him over there chewing and sniffing and sipping. That's disgusting. A man wouldn't know a decent grape if it jumped up and bit him on the behind. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty. Uh, I like this conversation and I do like the rest of this plot line too, which we'll get to. But you're right. Maurice kind of like tries to defend himself here, but he makes an interesting point. I think whether he intends to or not, the fact that Holling is happy. Like, despite Walt knowing that this wine uh, was bad and that Maurice should not have been auctioning it or donating it to the auction, at the end of the day, 
if it makes hauling happy, why should it matter if it's good or bad wine? Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a, I, I love this thought that's going on through this episode. And I think later when we see hauling again and they talk about wine, we get sort of a reprisal of this idea. But what is your, what is your, your thought of this? Uh, it's a little bit more difficult to parse in my opinion because I feel like it's such a non-consequential plot line mm-hmm. for there. I feel like you could have just concentrated on the other two ones. Uh, what you have to, what, what you said makes sense mm-hmm. right there. Just taking it as an example, like this is another eye of the beholder thing, but like, you know, I like coffee. I like beer. I like, you know, I like these things that you could get very snobby about. And I know mm-hmm. wine is particularly one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of people who say like, you know, even if you take a master sommelier, they couldn't tell from one or the other, but. Right. I I, I think we could talk about this a little bit more better. And mm-hmm. we like quickly talked about the ending scene with this. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go over that one really quickly right Let's now. Yeah. So what happens then is that, um, at the end, when Ruthann is opening up the library, everyone's coming in and they're all talking about, and they're all talking and commiserating. And Maurice apologizes to Holly and says, "Hey, I sold you something that was not up to par." And Holly doesn't care because to him, he sees the value of the wine that he drank, and he's fine with it. Mm-hmm. He likes it for what it is. He's not. He doesn't want to get better at it. He doesn't want to read the magazines that Maurice is trying to provide him, the literature to help him get a finer grasp of the things. He's okay with where he is now. So that pretty much is the resolution of that plot line. And I think that there is merit to that argument. There's certainly nothing wrong with people enjoying what they want to enjoy, Mm -hmm. um, despite whatever depth or analyzation that other people want to thrust upon them. So, uh, one example off the top of my mind that I can think of is like if you're watching a movie or a television show and you're just looking at like the lighting or the the shot composition, the framing, whatever, I think those are all really great to talk about. And I think if you want to have a meaningful conversation about those elements of film, then you need to have a firmer grasp on the technicalities, the nuts and bolts of why a filmmaker done that and even how they did so. You can talk about like the lens that they're using, the cameras that they're using, the lighting setup, all these different factors. But then you could also be like, Oonga Boonga, I just think it looks pretty. <laughs> and you're like, all right, that's like a valid thing. Like, who might to take that away from you? Yeah. You'd be like, I, I just think pretty lights look pretty. Go as deep as you want, you know, necess- like, because it does, it's true. Like, at the end of the day, it looks pretty. And so, like, that's not wrong either, you know? Holling likes the taste of it. So, if it works for him, like, who are we to say you should be drinking this wine? You should be reading this magazine. I do want to point out, uh, Maurice doesn't, like, outright admit that he like, oh, I shouldn't have sold you that wine. But we know that Maurice feels guilty and wants to like, he wants to highlight those things and that he sees in his friend, the um, appreciation. Like he gets really, Holland gets excited about this wine. So he's giving him this, like he gives him like a very fancy 61 Rothschild, which I'm assuming is, I know they've mentioned this wine a lot in this series, the Lafitte Rothschild. Mm-hmm. So that maybe that's what it is. And he gives him that wine magazine. Holling says, uh, oh, you want me to read? No, no, no. I don't have time for that. He says, I, I know everything I need to know about it. I know what I like. And yeah, just to go on what you're saying, Charles, it's um, it's just like, it's fine as, f- as far as you want to take it. You don't need to get snobby about it. You don't need to get 
very well educated and read these magazines, like you're saying, as long as it's working for you, that's good. But I think what's what's interesting is like, you know, whether or not Holling reads that magazine, he's going to drink the wine still. And what Maurice is doing is at least just like the stepping stone. You know, it's just like a nice introduction. He's not pushing too hard. Maurice isn't um, berating Holling for liking spoiled wine. Like, you idiot, what are you talking about? I like this approach because I think, I don't know myself because I'm not a sommelier, but I would assume that you can't just like have this same appreciation overnight. It starts small. Like it starts from Holling's desire and joy in serving wine and drinking wine with his friends. And then it'll go as far as he wants it to go. And I love that we have that ending because he's like, I already know everything I need to know about it right now. Like whatever I like, I'm going to stick to that. Maybe it'll develop, maybe it won't. This is a comfortable position, I think. Right. I I think it's important not to harsh on other people's yums. I I think that's what (laughs) makes me a very poor critic on a lot of things. Because I like oftentimes I'll watch something or I'll consume a piece of media and I'll be like, yeah, it's like fine. Like, like yeah. my, my complaints are almost never <laughs> of like very, very large substance because I don't want to hurt the other individual who genuinely did like it. Like yeah. if someone like really liked this thing, I don't want to be like, no, it's a piece of crap. Let me tell you why. Let me ruin the special feelings that you had behind it. Now, granted, if you were walking into like an arena of debate and there was like actual merits of conversation that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's on you for walking into there. Yeah. Uh, and like purposely engaging, but <laughs> oh, I wasn't like a normal conversation. Like you're saying, like if this is where he wants to take, uh, as far as his eyes want to take him, mm-hmm. then that's, uh, that's it for the beholder. There you go. Let's, uh, oh, before we go into our last plot line, I want to talk about the final scene with like Shelly and Randy and hauling that kind of bit of wrap up. Um, what is it like, um, Holling has another conversation with Shelly about like, you know, we, you know, we can't always think about it this way. That's just like the way life goes. You know, we have to be happy with the life that we have. It's, it's actually, I didn't take any notes on what he wrote, uh, what he said, though I do like this monologue, but I mostly, what I was thinking about when I was watching this scene was the episode, Hello, I Love You in season five which I thought at first I was like, man, this is strange that Shelly is so hung up on Miranda growing up because the first time she saw Miranda, quote unquote, in the uh, time traveling laundromat scenes is she saw her child, you know, her future child um, in different scenes. She would go back to the laundromat and Miranda would be older as this person named Miranda, you know, and then the next time she'd be like a teenager and then she'd be like getting ready to go off to college. So she's already seen Miranda get older. Like, shouldn't she understand like that? This is how it works. Why is it so hard for Shelly to understand? And I think there, I love that there is sort of a disagreement between that episode and what's happening in this episode, because from what I gathered at the end of that, um, just combining those two episodes in my head is that in the end, like truthfully, sometimes it's hard for us to really see for ourselves, um, until, it's actually happening. Like when Shelly is meeting Miranda for the first time, this is sort of like a weird time travel, you know, this could be like a premonition of my daughter, but now she's actually living it. And so she's learning this firsthand. And um, I do think it makes sense for Shelly to have a hard time here, even if she's already seen Miranda grow 
in, in another way, I guess, in a Hello, I Love You in that episode. Yeah, I think, okay, so from, from what you said, there's two things that I wanted to talk about right there. The first mm-hmm. one is that I think it's very true that once you live through something, it's much different than just reading or hearing about it. So, like, let's say you take a very trite phrase, like, be the best you you can be. You read that and you're like, what is this baloney? Like, everyone knows that, whatever. But then you grow older, and you, you go through some stuff and you're like, oh, wow, holy crap. The the identity of what you are is mostly decided by yourself. And in fact, I would wager it's entirely decided by yourself. So why not just try to be, in, you know, be happy with who you are and just go on with it? Like that makes a whole lot of sense. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> so there is totally, I, I'm in agreement with you that like, yeah, this is, uh, it's going to hit much harder mm-hmm. once you put some mileage into your uh, human-shaped container. (laughs) The second thing, though, is that I I get what you're saying, that this is something that's already been talked about, and that's why I wanted the metaphor, or at least the themes and the lessons, to hit a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. I get what they're going with on this, and I understand how it ends. So what's happening here is that Hauling has a speech about how Miranda needs to find her own path. She's going to grow up and walk away. And then at the button at the end of the scene is that Miranda learns how to walk. She takes mm-hmm. her first step. So it's like, okay, I, the, the cycle is completing itself. The metaphor, <laughs> I, it's writing itself right here. I get yeah. it. It's it's good. That's a good metaphor. <laughs> but y'all, y'all already talked about it with that teenage plot line. Or like the, the, not the teenage, but like what she meets, like different versions. Yeah, the hello, I love of Miranda. Yeah. Right. Which I think is really great looking back at that. I mm-hmm. actually think that the mechanism is wonderful. That whole episode is really great. It feels like it's treading on the same water, but not finding like a different angle of attack. It's the mm-hmm. same angle, just done with a different uh, lens, but you're ultimately shooting the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it just didn't hit that hard for me when I was watching this episode. Yeah, I liked this ending, but only when I take into account the memory of Hello, I Love You. Like they work together, they work well when taken together, but... You know, I cried when I watched Hello, I Love You. I, this episode didn't hit as hard, you know, or this little plot line didn't hit as hard. So I'm there with you. Like, I'm, I'm with you. It's kind of, it's redoing something they've already done and it's maybe less powerful. They could have, they could have tried to hit a little, I know there, I know that Northern Exposure can really like pull at the heartstrings and really have a strong effect on me. Um, so, so I will agree that it's not as strong as that first episode. That didn't fully get there. Um, yeah, baby Miranda's walking. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about the primary plot line, as we said, the boy detective Ed and uh, this um, femme fatale, Heather Haynes. Let's see. So after that sort of opening scene where we meet Heather, we walk around the grounds for a little bit and learn about um, w- what this... Uh, insurance claim or whatever with this he's Hayden suing Lester for this amount of money. The next scene is Ed is going to be surveilling Hayden and Ronaldo's there in the car with him. They're kind of on a stakeout. Ronaldo's giving him like the instructions, like this is how you're going to do it because I've actually got to jet and do something else. So you're going to be alone tonight. Right. They got all these uh, different little gadgets and mechanisms to spy on Hayden. Uh, one's like a parabolic dish, other things like a recording device whenever he gets to the telephone. Uh, I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat right here uh, <laughs> <laughs> just for fun. Did you know that like in today's 
uh, climate of spying and the way that technology has progressed to monstrous degrees, <laughs> you can actually so imagine your phone's next to your laptop. Mm-hmm. There is actually a way in which someone could breach into your phone's sound system where it can hear the noises around it, mm-hmm. and it can hear you typing on the laptop. And from there, it could deduce what letters you're typing so they can crack and get the password that they need into your account. That's insane. How would they know which letters? No they don't idea. make they make different sounds. Maybe like it's like the way you type because based on your because everyone the way you has type yeah you always and have. like the frequency of letters right. like in the, like in the English language e is used a lot so like and the way you insert that's insane yeah you you <laughs> read that and you're like ah there's nothing you can do there's not like you can't find it. <laughs> Like, what are you going to do? You're going to, like, bring your phone to the bathroom every single time and then get on the laptop? Like, no, you just got to accept it. I won't I won't go down without a fight, but, uh, yeah, I don't think there's, <laughs> there's anything I can do. Stuff. All right. <laughs> Tim Boy Hut off. Okay. It's, it's kind of like a scene of Ed trying to spy on Hayden. He's got all these mm-hmm. different devices, and he's really into it. Yeah. Now, I believe this is also the scene where Ed has a little bit of remorse because he yeah. he's not so far married to the truth more so than the character of Hayden, because Hayden once helped him out before. Right. He was like, yeah, he's not like a bad individual. Like one time I needed some fishing bait and he got me that fishing bait. He's okay in my book. And then Renato has to remind him, just because we're doing this doesn't automatically designate him as guilty. We're just trying mm-hmm. to get to the truth right here. And if he didn't do it, then it absolves him. Yeah, I like, I really love the line. I just like the actor, but the line he says is, uh, Ed, maybe we won't bust him tonight. Maybe we'll find him innocent and vindicate him. Did you ever think about that? But then he does go on to say one way or another, case is closed, justice is served. So we'll get this more towards the end of the episode. But Reynaldo has a viewpoint that their job is not to try to convict someone, try to prove someone guilty, or to try to prove their innocence. They are just the eyes. I, we'll get to that. That's like the end. He says, we're the eyes, you know, the private eye. Right. So we just are there to make sure whatever truth is there, we capture that truth and present it to close the case, to to serve justice, you know. I, I also, it was at this point in the episode where I was thinking about this, um, but it comes up later because I was like, wait, is Hayden actually a good guy? Because Hayden was the one in, um, can't remember which episode, oh, Cup of Joe, because uh, someone is mysteriously stealing the petty cash from Joel's office. And Marilyn thinks, you know, she's like kind of gets down on the case and she believes it to be Hayden. It's never proven, but that's weird to assume that Hayden was stealing petty cash from Joel's office. So yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know that he's such a good guy. Maybe he's nice to Ed. I don't know. Right. Uh, we see that in the <laughs> next scene, that inability to trust or not trust him because we cut to Ed walking to Joel's office because mm-hmm. If you're a private investigator, then you're going to want to get all of the people involved in the case, which would be his doctor. So he talks to, well, first he sees Hayden Mm -hmm. walking out and he's like, hey, Hayden. Yeah. (laughs) He says to Hayden, I'll see you later. That is, we'll see each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ed then goes into the office to talk with Joel and... Joel makes a small little comment that we made at the beginning of this episode. You know, shaman, bag boy, I hope your paper route doesn't suffer. And Ed's like, no, nah, I did the paper route already on my way over. Yeah. Dr. Fleischer, may I have a moment of your time? Hey, yeah. What's up? Well, 
I'm working with Ronaldo Pinetree on the insurance fraud investigation of Hayden Keys. So, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Investigation with Pinetree, huh? You're a detective now? Well, in training. Quite the Renaissance man, Ed. Shaman, bag boy. Hope your paper route doesn't suffer. Oh, no, I did it on the way home from the stakeout of Hayden's house. See, that's the thing, Dr. Fleischman. We're trying to catch him. So I wanted to ask you, is Hayden really hurt? And this is where he tries to ask Joel if he's faking his injuries. And Joel, as a doctor, says, uh, doctor-patient confidentiality. Mm-hmm. And then he says, well, but speaking as a personal human, <laughs> you know, there, there's always a possibility. It's very hard to... Uh, to diagnose these types of things, which I don't, yeah. I don't really get that excuse because everybody is also like separate <laughs> from their job. Like, how does that no, make yeah, you yeah, special, Joel? Yeah, Joel's like, I can't tell you about his medical history as a doctor, but as a person, I could tell you that I don't like Hayden uh, because <laughs> how can you not always uh, use that excuse, though? <laughs> well, I mean, well, he doesn't ever say that Hayden lies about his injuries or that Hayden is hurt or isn't hurt. All he says is, uh, quote, complaints of neck and back pain are very difficult to disprove medical evidence or lack thereof, notwithstanding. Ed says, so he's not, not hurt. But Joel is basically just saying like, I, you know, we can't really prove it either way. He doesn't say whether or not Hayden is injured. Um, just says you can't prove it either way. I see what you're saying though. It's like a little sly. It's a little, uh, it's a little, tricky for for Joel to uh I mean, turning against Hayden in this way but he's not he's not giving up any evidence I guess yeah like medical evidence. He's, he's not but he's definitely like whistling at it <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. we cut to the next scene which is going to be Ed being a good detective now that he's talked with the appropriate parties now he's going to go back through and go through the clues go through the site itself mm-hmm. and that's where he meets up with Heather again because, well, he's in her backyard. He's trying to see, he's trying to recreate the situation that led to Renato having mm-hmm. a rake be done. Yeah, he's in the garden with Heather. They've got the rake there. He's walking through this series of events. It's all played out in like a wide shot. I think the dolly cameras are kind of dollying very slightly. Ed is walking around back and forth as Heather stands there and he's asking her questions. I don't know how they get on the subject, but basically Heather asks him out. Like Ed is like, I'm going to go fishing later. She says, what are you doing later? going to go fishing later just by myself. Heather doesn't like fishing, but she's like, hey, we've got our own boat. We've got our own lake. Like, we've got a lodge. We can go, you know, I'll pack a, I'll pack a picnic basket. We can go do this. And it's sort of like a date. And Ed, I was about to say Ed falls for it because I'm thinking of her only as a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's necessarily so sinister. Um, but, you know, they, Ed, Ed is excited to... Uh, go on this little fishing trip with with Heather. Right. Well, you can tell that Ed's putting the pieces uh, bit by bit because he's wondering why there's even a rake there in the first place, which then leads to the next scene, which is them having dinner at the lodge. And mm-hmm. Ed's still going through the case. And- there's one scene right before it. It's not very substantial, but Ed is watching the Maltese Falcon, like this old black and white noir film. He's like preparing his fishing rod, like rolling his fishing rod. He's at his house getting ready. TV's on in the background. And on screen, Humphrey Bogart calls the lady. I think think it's Mary Astor is the actress. He calls her a liar. And Ed stops like twirling the fishing rod and just like sits and is looking at the TV and is thinking. So he's like starting to get the sense that maybe Heather's lying to him. Ed's fishing for the truth. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, good catch. I uh, forgot about that. And when you apply that and then you go into the next scene, mm-hmm. you can see him try to unravel the case itself. And then Heather lets loose that it's actually yeah. her garden and not Lester's garden, which makes a world of difference because she was the one who came out and talked to him first. She's the one that's most involved with the case. Show mm-hmm. that immediately shoots her up. But then she changes the conversation by saying, let's just go fishing. Yeah, Ed is like, oh, the garden's yours. The garden by the path where the rake was is yours. And she's going to be like, oh, it's not mine per se. It's like everybody's. But yeah, he's starting to clue it together, though he doesn't accuse her of anything yet. I thought something about, okay, at the beginning of the scene, I thought it was really interesting and I still haven't really cracked it or made any sense out of it. It might not have any meaning, but I think there's got to be something to it. At the beginning of this scene, they're having like a little lunch before they go out to the boat. I think they're eating like a, the garden salad or whatever. Um, Ed is telling a story to Heather about a pigeon that was trapped in a washing machine, except he thought it was a big owl because whenever it was chirping in the washing machine, it like echoed mm-hmm. in the belly of that machine and it sounded a lot bigger. And Heather was like, you know, well, you helped it out. Like, that was great that you did it. Because uh, uh, this was like a washing machine in a um, junkyard or something. It's next to the dump. Next to the dump. And he opened the washing machine and the pigeon came out. He Maybe, I don't know what we're supposed to get from the story. Like maybe it's like, it's kind of scary if it was a big owl, but it just turned out that it was a pigeon. It was nice that Ed was, um, you know, generous enough or kindly enough to save this poor bird that was trapped. And Heather says, well, you did it. That was like such a nice thing. That you did. Ed says, like, oh, anyone would have helped it. That's not nothing. She says, no, but you did it. Um, but yeah, is there any? Yeah. What could the significance be here of like, I was trying to draw something from what you think is a big, scary owl is actually a small pigeon. And there's like the refraction of or the um, interpretation of that. Or is it more about Ed being a hero? I think. What do you got? Uh, the more. I, I like where you're going with this, but I think that it's actually a simpler reason. And the simple reason is that it's a bird. Birds symbolize freedom. So when Ed goes into the washing machine and he opens it, he's letting the freedom fly. He's letting the truth go. Ah, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and that fits in, you know, at the end when Ed willingly lets Hayden off. He's setting it free. Yeah. There's got to be something, too, with um, uh, perception, too, because mm-hmm. he perceives it as something – that it's not until he opens the washing machine and lets the truth out. Right. I, I think that both of ours combined yeah. most mm-hmm. likely leads to a pretty reasonable explanation on the story. Yeah. I mean, like that's not this, this little bit. And that's what I love about this show. And a lot of writing like this is like this little bit doesn't really affect the plot much, but the writers are putting something to paper and you know, whatever they could just be writing throwaway lines. But I do think that, you know, they're like, Oh, I got to write something real fast. Let me put some meaning into it. So I do think they were trying to put a little meaning into that. No, I agree that they are. I I think that, okay, so this is just me speaking personally, but I think that when people try to make the argument against blue curtains, and blue curtains is that famous (laughs) argument of saying like, they were just blue for the sake of being blue. You're overanalyzing something, which to be fair, like that happens. But oftentimes things don't exist in a vacuum and people spend weeks uh, and months writing things, especially of uh, like a television show. They put their blood and sweat into this. They definitely can use symbols and motifs. They're not hacks. Right. So 
I, I'm I'm almost always willing to give the writers the leeway to be like, they were trying to go for something. Maybe they weren't going to like hit you over the head. Like they were going to like shoot to the bird and the, like the, the dump at the end and try to like really give a heavy handedness toward it. It's like that thing that you said that like you can skip it if you want to. It's not going to, it's not going to hurt you on the story, but if you're willing to take a second look at it, you can derive a little bit more meaning out mm-hmm. of this symbol. And it doesn't have to mean that way because if it only means one thing, then it's no longer a symbol, but an allegory. If it only can mm-hmm. mean this one thing, because we have such a different way of looking at it and it can mean multiple different things. That's what makes it exciting because then you get to defend your points and use that to bolster the story or how it doesn't bolster the story and how like maybe the birds don't really mean anything at all. It was just a simple mm-hmm. story to tell. I think that's the fun thing about critically analyzing media like this, which Northern No Exposure offers plenty of chances on these. So, yeah, I, I think that was a really good catch by you, Lee, to really want to talk about the bird in the washing machine. Yeah, and kind of going off of some things you were saying, like, you know, this is a TV show that people work on hard. You know, they spend a lot of time to make this good. And, like, I would assume this isn't the first draft. Like if this was just a little bit of dialogue that was kind of throwaway, then you could edit it out of the of the screenplay, of the teleplay or whatever. You know, if it wasn't that important, there must have been some reason for the writers to be like, no, this is worth keeping in. Like we could, like, there's no reason to cut this. Because we've seen, also we've seen deleted scenes of this show. Like things do get cut for time. Maybe this was uh, something that would be hard to edit out for many reasons, but at least in the writing phase, this was made it into the script. Like they were like, no, let's keep this in the script. So they must have some idea behind it. Right. And I think that like, we've talked about this like plenty of times, but like there was an emphasis on the word choice that they use in this Mm -hmm. show. Sometimes they'll say like something that evokes metal, for instance, or something that evokes sand. Mm -hmm. There's various instances of that spread throughout all five seasons that we've seen in Northern Exposure. It's not wildly out of the viewpoint that we are trying to look a little bit more into the story of the bird. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's go ahead on this plot line. It's actually the soundbite we played in the beginning is what happens next, where Ed meets up with Ronaldo. Bringing the bear claws. Yeah, they have a they have a healthy breakfast of bear claws and <laughs> RC cola. Like RC cola what a combination. They, is they that? drop. Uh, they say RC cola a lot in this episode. They they really <laughs> like that. Um, you know, before Ed shows up, Ronaldo is like sitting in the car alone, and he's playing on what appears to be an iPhone. I mean, obviously it's like a calculator or something, but it looks like he's like playing on an iPhone in 1994, and. Um, Yeah, Ed comes in with those bear claws. This is the scene where Ed is talking about like how he had a great time with Heather and Ronaldo is putting it together. He's like, wait, 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 you actually shouldn't do that as a private investigator. Like that is your client. Professionality aside, like if this thing does go to court, you know, there could be, what does he say? Collusion could be inferred that you're friends with uh, one of the people, one of the, what is that called? The, the, defendant the claimant no, the defendant i guess the plaintiff uh heather would be the defendant the plaintiff or i don't know on one of the sides if you're <laughs> colluding with them. someone's sitting in the court one of them <laughs> one of the two people on the, in the court <laughs> right um so so ed decides here it's actually not 
doesn't seem that dramatic. Ed's like, yeah, you're right. Like, well, I don't know if it's written this way, but the the sense I got from the acting was like, no, nah, you're right. I'll I'll break things off with Heather. Like, it's, it's fine. <laughs> right. That leads to the next stakeout night with just Ed. And this is where he oh, catches yeah. Hayden in the act. Hayden's dressed in a green shirt, which I don't want to look too much into this, but I, I would assume that like greens are like popping, like a really bright color to catch your eyes. And so mm. like that really makes Hayden stand out. So mm-hmm. he gets up and yeah. dances and Ed's got it all on film. He catches him in between the window seal. Now I thought that something was going to go south in this because I remember Renato saying, don't ever leave the truck. And then Ed leaves it in order to get a oh, better yeah. view. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I, like I said, I watched this twice in preparation for the podcast. The first time when I was rewatching, you know, I guess I'd seen this before, but watching it again for the first time, um, I was getting really nervous when Ed got out of the truck. I was like, oh, no, 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 something bad's about to happen. Because as you said, Ronaldo gave that line. Nothing really physically bad happens to Ed, but it's more of a uh, psychological thing. Because Ed, as he's filming Hayden, while Hayden is dancing, we can see Ed, I think he like removes his eye from the viewfinder, puts the camera down, and we can kind of see that he feels guilty. I mean, it's not verbalized, but it's kind of plain to see. Like, Ed feels guilty about this. Mm, That's a really good point. Like, the truck is a sanctuary to remain a third party. Yeah. And then once he leaves the truck, he's actively being involved in the case now, which is, Mm. in his favor, he does need to, like, get a little bit of a closer look toward it. But Uh you could also raise a similar argument to being like, no, he had enough. He he already nailed him right there in the truck once he already got the the photo. You you didn't have to get out. But yeah, that makes him a lot more... It's got some skin in the game now. Yeah, that's a great little symbol there, like metaphor or whatever's going on with uh, Ed leaving the truck. We forgot there was a scene earlier. We don't really need to talk about it that much, but Ed is, while he's surveilling... Um, this is earlier when he's surveilling Hayden, like a different night. There's like a bit of a phone call, sort of like sexy talk on, on the phone oh, between yeah. Hayden and uh, and Ed just feels like gross. He's like, oh, like why am I, why am I like, he kind of feels a little guilty, but kind of gross that he's spying on I think, his friend Hayden. I think in some way that's like, it's kind of good because it's showing the inkly tendrils of what he's diving into yeah when you're unethically spying on somebody like this on their private matters then you're gonna wad into some pretty dirty stuff so mm-hmm. ed is realizing this as he gets more and more involved into the case i like that but once he cracks the case open he goes to chris as mm-hmm. the voice of reason and he tries to talk to him about personal injury what it means to like actually feign injury yeah and Chris, uh, I think Chris initially is like, I'm, I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised um, that Hayden would do this. He says, he mentions that Hayden has prior convictions. He lists check kiting and impersonating a peace officer. <laughs> so Hayden, what has Hayden been doing? Um, but anyway, he says, yeah, I mean, with these prior convictions and the evidence laid out in front of him, uh, he thinks that Hayden would probably get three to five years in prison out in two years. So Ed from this can see that like what he's doing is going to send Hayden to jail, his friend to jail, you know, his, or just this person is going to go to jail if, um, if this comes to light. So he takes this information and uh, 
Oh, he doesn't go to Hayden just yet. He has to go talk to Heather, right? Yeah, he talks to Heather, who's doing a little bit of gardening outside. And that's where Ed puts two and two together to be like, hang on, you do gardening an awful lot in your backyard? Holy crap, you left. There's there's a rake right yeah. there. Like, he looks at the rake. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's where he puts two and two together and realizes that she was the one who put the rake right there. I also think it's kind of uh, neat that she's trying to look for something. She's got her shovel out, and she's trying to look for, like, a, I want to say, like, a skull or something to put on a bookshelf. Something of that nature. She wanted to go cave crawling yes. with Ed. That he, but he, that's when he... um. He breaks it off. Right. So she was looking for a skull. Yeah. But it certainly looks like she's trying to bury something. She's trying to bury the truth. (laughs) Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's like she's like burying the evidence there. I think that's also just um, that happens. That's a symbol uh, that occurs in a lot of those like noir films, like burying evidence in the garden or getting rid of the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Ed accuses her of leaving the rake out. And it turns out she... Pretty much comes clean. She admits that she had to step away to answer the phone because it was ringing. And that's why the rake was there. She left it there. Hayden tripped on it. But the truth is Hayden is faking. He's faking for real. Like he's actually, he's not actually that. I mean, must have sucked to get smacked in the face by the rake, but he's not injured like that. I don't know as far as the x-ray or the, you know, the Joel's perspective on this, but we know for sure that Hayden can still get up and dance. He doesn't need that walker. He doesn't, maybe not, maybe doesn't need that neck brace. So, you know, the truth is a little messier here now because um, Heather maybe is at fault here, but also Hayden is taking too much advantage of the situation. So what do we do? Right. And that's where Ed blows up on Hayden because he confronts him at Hayden's (laughs) house and says, you're doing all this just because of some stupid old money. If they get you, and they will because I got the evidence, when they get you and put you into the slammer, there's going to be no more fishing, no more of any freedom. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be able to fly like a bird, Hayden. So just cut it out. So quit acting like your wings are clipped. Right. And he actually gives Hayden the tape. Like, I'm like, did you make a copy of that? Please tell me you made a copy of this tape. But he gives Hayden the tape to be like, look, like, I shouldn't do this. Uh, Ronaldo's going to be mad at me. But this is like, this is proof that you're lying. And I know you're lying. So if Ed didn't, I mean, if Ed made a copy, then it's just like, okay, here's the tape, Hayden. Like, we got this evidence on you. You can watch it and see for yourself. If he didn't make a copy, then it's like, just from here, it's just Hayden knowing that his friend Ed will always know that Hayden is a liar and and not a good person for doing stuff like this. So I kind of like that ending as well when Hayden, because we'll later see that Hayden drops it all. He drops the act. So in this scenario that I'm creating, it's like, okay, Hayden made that choice because he knows that Ed, Ed thinks of him as better than that. Like he wants to take the high road for Ed. You know, he's like, I know, the only person that I know that likes Hayden right now is Ed. (laughs) Like everyone else (laughs) seems to hate Hayden, but uh, Ed, Ed has a good view of Hayden. So maybe that means a lot to Hayden. Yeah, so Ed's the only one sticking behind him in the corner. Otherwise, he would have got, you know, charged with some felonies of lying and everything like that. Uh, So we're approaching the end. There's one little Mm -hmm. scene that we can talk about before we cut to Ed and Renato. It's the opening of the library nuke where everybody comes together for all the plot lines. We get some resolutions like Holling and Maurice. 
We get shots of other characters that we didn't see a whole lot. Maggie, Joel, all of that. There's not like a whole lot of things to talk about this one other than the fact that uh, the town came together, did some pancake suppers, did some fundraising, <laughs> and they could open like a specific nook, a library nook for the town. Yeah, because I forgot that the library is in Ruth Ann's store. So they've expanded it, 12 shelves, she says, and a whole new research carol with a lamp. She also chastises the town like no more dog-earing the books, like, don't do that anymore. Don't bring any food or drink back here. Like, we have gathered together and made something good, so let's appreciate it for what it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And Ronaldo's there, too. They're all kind of hanging out. I think there's a bit of a potluck situation, maybe, because it seems like there's food involved. And Hayden comes in with maybe some books for the um, for the new library edition, and he doesn't have his walker, doesn't have his neck brace. I think Hayden's walking in with like a big box of books and Holling's like, oh, let me help you with that. And he's like, no, you don't need to, Holling. And uh, Ronaldo and Ed are sitting there and Ed's like, oh, you, uh, so you're, you're feeling better, huh? And uh, that's that's good. That's good that you're feeling better. And Hall, um, Ronaldo's like really kind of like taking the piss out of him. I don't know how else you would say it, where he's like, oh yeah, you just miraculously healed. Like what's going on here? <laughs> Ronaldo's like, uh, you smell it, Ed? BS. I got to get some air. <laughs> and like he walks out. But we could tell that Ed and, and Hayden have a nice little acknowledgement in this scene. Right. And then uh, we get to the final scene, which is Ronaldo walking past and Ed is following along. Uh, it's a tracking shot, is it not? Camera like follows them along like that. I think you're right. Yeah. It's very cinematic, very dramatic. And like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Feels very movie like. Mm -hmm. And Ed tries to justify himself to Renato. So he's like, you know, Heather was just trying to protect her family. She did some bad, but it was ultimately for an altruistic reason of protecting her father. And Renato responds back, oh, what a tangled web we weave. A lot of people think that's from Shakespeare, but it's actually not. It's from an early 19th century Scottish author, Sir Walter Scott. It's from his epic poem, Marmion? I don't know if I'm pronouncing what? that right. Marmion? I spell it? M-A-R-M-I-O-N. Oh, okay. Yeah. Marmion? Marmion, a tale of Flodden Field. So this is where Renata tells Ed that we're not here to judge. We're here to be eyes. Yeah, we're not here to judge. We're hired eyes. Eyes and eyes only. Understand? Word of advice, don't play God. And then he he leaves by saying, see you around, Ed, which unfortunately will never happen again. <laughs> you don't ever see Ronaldo Pine Tree. Such a cool character. I'm glad we got this episode, though. Let's see. The first the first episode we got with Ronaldo Pine Tree, what was the case there? Was there a case? No, there was a case. Yeah. Because he's got it? that like, whole binder. Binder? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? With Remember the binder? You like all those photos? Oh, uh, Ed is trying to find his mom, yeah, his birth mother. Yeah, that's what it is. And he hires an older pine tree. But I'm glad that we get another one. And this one feels very genre, like in the genre of noir. Whereas the last one has some notes of that, but it's more about just like Ed kind of finding a new friend. Not even like father figure. I mean, it's father figure. You could read that, but it's just like. Hey, I got I know this cool guy who's my friend now. Right. Dang it. I wish he comes back in this series. He ends his ending shot is actually kind of neat because it's super he's yeah. walking down the alley 
And the sign that's above him is lit red mm-hmm. as if it's a stop sign mm. telling him that like his time has come. Whereas it cuts to Ed before and he's got much more of an open path signifying that like, you know, he's got, he's got a future ahead of him in, in Northern Exposure. <laughs> he's got more episodes. <laughs> uh, bad. All right, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we're going to invite on a guest. This is a fan of Northern Exposure here to talk about Season six, well, specifically this episode. Now, this guest is uh, one of our fans, Patrick Glenn, who had written to us in the past, like uh, emailed us, just telling us, you know, thanks for making the show, love the podcast, um, but also talking about uh, his experiences with some of the actors uh, on the series. And one of those actors is Ronald G. Joseph, who plays Reynaldo Pinetree in this episode. And uh, he, I asked him if he would talk a little bit about his meeting, Ronald G. Joseph, and just his thoughts about this episode, about season six. So without further ado, let's hear what Patrick has to say. Hi, I'm Patrick Glenn, a fan of the Northern Overexposure podcast. I am like Lee in that I was known to my friends as a super fan of Northern Exposure. I met Dennis Haysbert early in his career. In fact, I had no idea he was an actor until our mutual friend told me. Anyway, his friend Ronald Joseph was staying a couple of days with him in Altadena, California, on his way to guest star on Northern Exposure. They decided to have me over to Dennis's house to talk about the show. I like the sixth season a lot. Ronaldo Pinetree, his character came in the end of the fifth season, and then his, he had the second episode in the sixth season. I don't think the show ever jumped the shark. And some episodes were over the top, like the first episode of season six, perhaps. And other ones that I can think of with with the rabbi, etc. Depends on the viewer. But this the series was just as strong in the sixth season and the fifth season with David Chase. And I'll stand by that. But I know there's a debate. So I went to Dennis's house in Altadena, California and met Ron and spent an afternoon discussing the show and explaining the nature and tone of the show. He told me he was a friend of Darren Burroughs and would be working with him mostly. They had a connection. Being 30 years ago, a lot of the details are gone from me, but it was fun meeting him, and it always was fun to visit with Dennis Haysbert. I live in Houston now, and I have lost contact with Dennis, unfortunately. He's a wonderful person, and he used to tell me how he'd get inspiration for dramatic scenes and he would he would relive some of the tough moments of growing up in Oakland, California. Getting back to Darren Burroughs, years later in September of 2005, I was a member of American Cinematheque, a film society in Hollywood, California. They were doing a premiere at the Egyptian Theater for 40 Shades of Blue, a rip-torn vehicle, co-starring Darren Burroughs and Darren Burroughs would be present. Rip Torn wasn't, by the way. Anyway, imagine my excitement. When Mr. Burroughs arrived, I was there to meet him and give him and his lovely wife Melinda a tour of the historic Egyptian theater on Hollywood Boulevard. So Darren Burroughs is nothing like Ed Chigliak. He is reserved, fairly quiet, and worldly. What a great premiere it was, food and drink and a, and a Q&A. At one point, my wife was trying to get around a quiet guy for whatever reason. A closer look revealed Andre 3000. At that point, 
he was pursuing an acting career, he told me later that night. Many actors and directors can be found there at the historic Egyptian theater. I took for granted my time in Los Angeles. I saw movies being filmed near my house, King, starring Paul Winfield. They were filming the scene in the hotel when he was shot. Also at work, I worked in a hospital and they filmed the film True Confessions for a couple weeks. I actually stood next to the director, Ulu Grospar, who was such a nice guy to put up with me. As he directed De Niro and Duvall, I did enjoy these occasions very much, and I did talk a bit to De Niro because they were there for two weeks. Anyway, that's my limited memories of the, of the meeting I had with Ronald Joseph. Looking back on it now, it seems surreal that I would be in that position because nothing like that seems to be in my near future here in Houston. Thanks, Lee, for, for inviting me on and really enjoy listening to you and Charles. I'm looking forward to the sixth season of your podcast, Northern Overexposure. Oh, and one more thing. The idea of a sequel or a movie, it really appeals to me greatly that they could revisit this. And I know there's some interest among the stars. Let me tie that in with something else. All the criticism of David Chase, who's a filmmaker that I really like with Rockford Files and, of course, The Sopranos. But what if someone said to you, hey, we're going to do a Northern Exposure sequel movie and it's going to be helmed by David Chase. Would you not be thrilled or would you still be uh, anxiously wishing he couldn't work on it because I think he's a great creator and it would be unbelievable if he was at the helm although I don't think that's a chance but that's my two cents really want to have a sequel thanks again bye all right that was Patrick Glenn talking about uh meeting a lot of these actors and you know specifically Ronald Joseph and and a lot of other um just actors in, in California at the time when he was staying there. But I just really, okay, we're going to start at the end there because he poses an interesting question. David Chase, uh, we've kind of talked about David Chase's relation with Northern Exposure. I think at the time when he was hired as executive producer for the show, uh, he has been quoted saying that he hated television. So he like wasn't even excited to be working on Northern Exposure. I think he didn't really, it's implied that he maybe didn't even really like the show. He was just kind of doing it as a job. Having said that, I've never seen any, I mean, I've seen a little bit of Sopranos, but I've never, I've just seen a couple episodes. I haven't seen any of his uh, movies that he's made, but I recognize that I think a lot of people would say David Chase is a Some people would say David Chase is a genius for The Sopranos or something, right? Yeah, he's still, like, he carries so much respect, right. even to his name. Like, he can bomb the next three <laughs> television shows or movies, and people would still be like, nah, he still made The Sopranos. Dad. Like, yeah. you, can't, you can't take that away from him. But as, as we know, I think a lot of, not a lot, but at least some, there exists some uh, group of fans online who are very unhappy with David Chase's influence of Northern Exposure. Putting that all aside, 30 years later, David Chase is offered the chance to make a revival movie. We don't even have to speculate what the movie would be like. Is it with the same characters? Is it like new things or some returning whatever? But like, would you, would you be, what was your reaction if you heard that David Chase is in talks to helm a Northern Exposure movie? I think it's an interesting question. 
Uh, I would be delighted that anything of Northern yeah. Exposure was being made. Uh, I, I wouldn't be asking for... I, what, is, what is it? What is an idiom that means like asking for too much? Uh, you know, looking a gift horse in the mouth or whatever. Yeah, that, that one can work right there. <laughs> I think that, you know, we're almost 30 years beyond what the original air day was. Yeah. yeah you, you give me anything that's Northern Exposure related, and I think that's going to be news, lovely. Any Northern Exposure news, I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> like, I want to yeah. share with everyone, but only... Only like, you know, I the mean, fans. I think it. it's actually a pretty interesting thing. So like, let's yeah. say we go 30 years and we make this movie. It doesn't even have to be with the cast members anymore. It could just be with the town of Sicily. Give the reins to David Chase. Let him do whatever he wants just with the town. I think you probably score like a C minus or something like that at the very worst. <laughs> it's something, yeah. I've also heard, uh, this is not not reflecting on what Patrick was saying, but I've actually seen... Also a group of fans online, like not a group, but like I've seen multiple different people have this take uh, saying that they would hate it if the show was revived or um, made into a movie in that like, you know, we got, we were lucky enough to get, uh, you know, seasons one through five. I don't know. Maybe some people hate season six, but uh, lucky enough to get the television show, it's too late to try to go back. And uh, I, I think that's a valid opinion too. I think though, I have to agree with you, Charles. My opinion is like, I would, I just want any, <laughs> any Northern exposure news is good news for me. But I think that's also an interesting opinion to have for, um, I think, I, I think I, I often have an opinion like that to say, don't redo it. Don't remake it. Like we have, I love what it is. So I don't know. I can also relate to that. I do like how at the very beginning of Patrick's uh, recording here, he says uh, very explicitly that he likes season six and he stands by that, which uh, that's good to hear because Charles, I think we've been enjoying the episodes so far in season six. So, uh, you know, I, I do believe that there's going to be, I mean, I guess I know a little more than you do, Charles. It's going to change, you know, there will be a changing point, but I do believe there's still going to be some good episodes for sure. Yeah, I think that's really positive for, to hear that somebody really enjoys season six right there. Uh, one of the little things that he said that's been rattling in my mind when he said it was that he had spent an afternoon or a night or a day, I, I forgot the, the, the length of time, mm -hmm. in which he was speaking with Ronald Joseph about the nature of the show. And I, yeah. I think I've never had that experience before, but I've heard so many stories about that where somebody will spend a day with an actor or director and they're trying to like sell the show, but not really because it's not like they're like a producer or anything. They're yeah. trying to like get money or funding. <laughs> they're just trying to like say like what the nature of the show is and they're trying to apply their own craft to it to be like, yeah, so I think that, you know, this show that I'm working on is like the small little town that's quirky. It's got its own citizens in it. I think that I can probably deliver strong performance and subtle performance right here. It's not like a sitcom where we have to pump in laughs or anything like that. I think that, yeah, I can give really solid work on this because the writing is really solid. It's really letting me get into the weeds of my craft. And I imagine that's like that's probably such a delightful conversation to be hearing somebody talk about that. So I am a little bit jealous that Patrick got to spend a whole day speaking with him and hearing stories and having him try to sell him on this. Yeah. I mean, Charles, you know, I work in like film and TV, but I'm like, I don't work, you know, with like closely with famous people or anything like that. But even just my friends who are actors, I always find it really interesting because it is such a creative craft. And I just want to like ask them, I've done it with some of my friends who are actors like, you know, 
who take it seriously. It's like, what do you do? Like, what is it like? Like, what's your method or whatever? And it is, it is truly fascinating. And as uh, Patrick was saying, I think it's so cool that he's like kind of telling Ronald about uh, the tone of the show too. It's like, that isn't really unique situation to be in where you're meeting someone who's going to act on a TV show that you love. It's like, oh, this is my favorite show. You're, you're going to work on Northern Exposure? Oh man, it's going to be so cool. Like you just basically, like you're saying, pitching him the show, telling him what it's like. And like, you know, it's a little more, it can be serious. It can be jokey. It can be, you know, a lot of different things. So I loved hearing that story when Patrick emailed us. And uh, I, I love that he he could tell it again here on the podcast. And also hearing about that um, premiere of that movie, 40 Shades of Blue. It's a movie by Ira Sachs. And uh, I mean, I haven't seen it. I've been wanting to watch it because it's one of, uh, I believe Darren Burroughs probably has a pretty big sized role in the movie. I don't know if he's like lead or supporting. Um, I, actually, I think Patrick said it was like a Rip Torn vehicle. So Rip Torn is probably the lead, but I think Darren Burroughs has a pretty decent sized role. I've been meaning to watch that, but that's cool. You got to meet Darren and, um, you know, what did he say? He said something like the real life Darren Burroughs is nothing like Ed Chigliak. What did he, what did he, how did he describe Darren? Like more quiet, quiet, like, uh, worldly. I think he said, Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I I know that Darren Burroughs, I don't think he is uh, pursuing a career in acting anymore, but he does have an Instagram uh, that you can follow where he does metalworking. So uh, I think he just like lives out on his own farm. Like he loves his life, his wife, his family, and um, is kind of doing his passion of uh, of metalworking. Um, but yeah, sorry. Also, <laughs> I wanted to get to, I thought it was awesome that Patrick saw Andre 3000. At the, was it at that premiere? I think he said it was at that premiere. Yeah. For that movie. That's pretty cool. Is Andre 3000 still acting? That's a good question. Let's, let's see. That, that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel really ignorant on this, but like, I remember maybe he was really big in like the mid 2000s. Oh, like yeah. he started to get up and then like, yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard about him in such a long time. Well, oh my gosh. He's in white noise. The, the, the Don DeLillo Novo turn movie with uh, Noah, Noah Bombeck. Bombeck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw a review of that. One of my friends on Letterboxd was saying like all of the, um, all of those little like supporting roles. So I, obviously he's one of them. There's probably a bunch of little cameos in there, like supporting role actors. Uh, so yeah, he, he still acts. Um, looks like a lot of the stuff is like playing himself, you know, but you know, he's still doing stuff here and there. It's like TV. And yeah. It looks film. like he did dispatches from, uh, dispatches from nowhere. I think is what okay. it's called. Yeah. That's, that was like a quiet little thing that Jason Siegel put out in 2020. Mm, nice. Uh, well, oh, I see. That's the television series. Interesting. Never heard of that. Do you like know anything about it or? I, I, okay. I only knew about it cause it was done by Jason Siegel. Okay. It was like a dramatic series. He was trying to get more into that territory. Interesting. Uh, and then walking up to the director on the set of True Confessions with like Robert De Niro and Robert Duvall right there. And he's just like, I would imagine that if you're on a set, they're like, what is this guy doing here? Can we get him away from the director? But like, it's so cool. And that shows that that director is so chill that, you know, Patrick can just be like snooping around and hanging out and really get to see that. That's got to be incredible too, to see like Robert De Niro and Robert Duvall in the heat of acting in this movie being like given direction. Uh, yeah, that's cool. That's the kind of stuff I guess you, 
imagine if you to li- lived in like Hollywood or Los Angeles or whatever, you and you, like finding these sets as he's saying. So, I mean, Charles, you know, like we're uh, we're actually together in the same room right now. We're in New Orleans, and uh, they shoot a lot of stuff down here. Like, you know, I see film sets when I'm driving around all the time. But that's something that Patrick was talking about. It's like he would just be walking down the street and see. Um, I forgot the the movie he listed off the first one, but um, just different movies being shot. Uh, on on his block, it's it's a pretty crazy feeling. Yeah, and he lamented that he wouldn't be able to find that <laughs> in Houston anymore, which I think is true, right? Like, I, I don't think Houston has a, a budding film industry. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure that things are shot in Houston, but I don't think it's to the level of uh, uh, of LA or something, you know. But Patrick, thank you so much for listening to the podcast and reaching out to us in the first place. If you'd like to write into us, uh, listener, please reach out. Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. I remember any anytime we get an email, I just it really makes my day. I say we say it every time and I feel like it cheapens it, but it's true. Like I remember the very first email we ever got. And it was actually on a pretty rough day for me. And I was like, instantly all of the bad stuff that had happened that day, I was like, that doesn't matter. Like we have a podcast and someone's <laughs> listening to it. Um, but no, it really is awesome. Great to hear from people and not just for like, you know, my own ego or whatever, but just like talking to other fans of the show because it is very refreshing to know, uh, you know, that this show that I feel like is kind of lost over time still has a lot of fans uh, who are active and, you know, love watching the show. So thanks again, Patrick. I guess that will wrap it up for us. Charles, uh, we've already kind of spoiled this, but we've been watching ahead. So we've already seen the next episode. It's called Shofar So Good. All right, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Patrick Glenn for being our guest. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.